It is a joy to be here. I was actually, I actually preached at this church in 2015. You weren't Risen Hope Church, and you weren't meeting here. And if I remember right, there was about 50 people at that time. Don't remember what the school, what the school was where we met. God has done and is doing so much in your church. I have regular phone calls with this gentleman right here on the front row, Samuel Johnson. So we've got to, gotten to know him over the last year uh, to see Nick and Jenna going to the pastor's college. Uh, this man's going to be ordained next month here. So Samuel's going to be ordained. Uh, God is doing a lot of work. And then I look over here and see this building. Is that direction or this direction? That direction. I see this building. Yeah, it's there. I thought it was there. Our church began and we met in our apartment first. Then we met in the community building. Then we were asked to leave a community building. We met in a seven-day Adventist church. Then we were asked to come back to the community building. We met there for a few years. And we finally bought a John Deere, a, a closed-down John Deere dealership, just like your building. And over the next 10 years, about three or four phases, we finished that building. You would not know it's a John Deere building now. It's about 15,000 square feet, and it's a wonderful facility. So I want to say before I start this message, thanks for your vision. Thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for your giving towards that. God is going to use what you do there to build your church. It was one of the most wonderful times of our church life as we did that over a number of years and now have a facility that just serves us so well. And we're excited. You're all just beginning, right? You're just beginning, Mike, so you're raising funds. Thanks for your faithfulness. We don't do that. We do that for ourselves so we can, you guys are packing this place out. Our seven-day Adventist church, we used to have the worship team right there, and the front row was right there, and the sound crew was right there. It was packed just like this, even more so, and the Lord provided, and he's providing for you. So thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for those contractors here. I don't know who you are in this church that, that had vision to, let's do this, let's do it now, and I know you're giving towards that, and... Uh, God's going to use your faith. And I told our church, I said, we're not doing this only for us, primarily for us. We're, we're doing this. We expanded into a larger building for people whom we've yet to meet and who yet God has yet to save. And you're doing that here as well. So thanks for your vision for that. Appreciate Mike. Mike and I have known each other for a number of years now. Went to Burma together. Mike recounted that just a little bit. I think he said that's kind of where... Fresh Vision, the church plant, came about during that or shortly after that trip a number of years ago. It's a joy to lead our region. It's new for me. I look forward to getting to know you this year and in the coming years. There's so many stories I want to tell you. I'd love to tell you about Scott and Lindsay Boyer who moved to our church just this past year to begin this gap year school. They brought, they, students can go anywhere they want to any of the churches in our county and about 20 of the 22 students ended up coming to our church for the last nine months. And it was wonderful for our church. They are a wonderful couple. If you have a student that's heading off towards college, not sure if they're ready, want to deepen their spiritual life before they head off to college or to a career, check with them. It's a great year uh, and an opportunity. In the middle of no, no, it's, it's two miles beyond the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> we are in the middle of nowhere. So it's a one, I live in a town of 750 people. I grew up there. My father was a dentist in our town for about 60 years. And the Lord began a church. Our church just celebrated its 40th anniversary. We are grateful to God for his faithfulness to us as a church. And when I stood here and worshiped with you, I felt like, and they would say the same thing, I felt like I was at home worshiping in our church. Thank you for your faithfulness and passionate worship of the Lord and for making me feel at home among people 
of the same tribe. How's that? We're the same people. Why don't we pray? This morning, I'm going to talk on trusting God in the darkness. It's going to be a little bit of a different message. It's going to be topical. It's going to be more of a, it's going to be a serious message. The next time I come, I promise I'll preach on joy. But this, but this message is going to be preaching about trusting God in the darkness, struggling with doubt, and getting beyond doubt in the midst of suffering. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in this morning. <clears throat> Lord, I want to thank you for Risen Hope Church for Mike and the elders and their wives, and for the folks here who are faithful to your kingdom, Lord. And for the new, new folks, Lord, I don't think anyone's here this morning by chance. There might be some that you brought just to hear this message. Lord, I pray you'll speak to our hearts through your word. Lord, I pray particularly for those who are struggling with doubt, who are experiencing a season of suffering in their life that has caused them to wonder about your goodness. I pray, Lord, that you'll help me to speak words, your words, Lord, that will encourage their hearts. And that they might leave this morning, Lord, filled with fresh faith and hope for the future. Lord, I pray that you'd shine light upon the darkness as I preach in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a topical message. You are going through the book of Revelations, I believe. This is taking a break from this. It's going to be topical just by nature. And the jumping off point, the main focus is going to start in Isaiah 50.10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah 50.10. As we talk about spiritual doubt... I'm aware that this is something we all struggle with at particular seasons, possibly in our lives. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you about what brought an end to doubt for me in a particularly difficult seasons. We know that doubt has many causes. Some struggles with doubt are self-induced because we neglect the spiritual disciplines or the corporate means of grace, right? So we don't gather with the people of God if we don't get into his word. We're going to struggle with doubt. But that's not the kind of doubt I'm going to talk about today. The kind of doubt I'm going to talk about today is the doubt that we experience when we are dealing with intense or prolonged trials, either acute or prolonged trials. And I know some here have experienced that and you've walked through doubt, seasons of doubt with great fortitude. We can learn from you. And I also am aware that one message doesn't cover everything in this topic. You've got pastors here who will help you. Even if you're new here, you have pastors here who will help you if you're struggling with faith and suffering in a season of doubt. But Isaiah 50, 10 says this, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? And then it says this, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let's read that again. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now, for the Christian, faith ultimately comes down to two fundamental issues. The first issue is this. Is there a God? Is there a sovereign God who created and rules this world? That's the first issue. The second issue is, is this God trustworthy? Can I trust this God? Is this God good and personally involved in the world in such a way that I can completely trust him, well, trust him completely in my li- with my life and in my life. Hebrews 1, 6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must first believe that God exists, that's the first point, and secondly, and that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seeks him. That's the basis for faith, that there is a God and that he is good to those who earnestly seek him. And if the faith comes down to those two characteristics that are foundational to a, 
not just a, a, a doctrinal faith, but a living faith. That's our church name, living faith, a true and living faith. Now, my personal struggle with doubt, and I'll tell you a little bit about the background of that, uh, revolved around two main issues culminating in a particular event in my life. And this is about four years ago. First of all, I've struggled. Well, I have five children, four girls and a boy. And over a season, about a decade, I struggled watching my two youngest daughters live unmarried through their 20s into their 30s. Now, one daughter just at 37 got married just a few months ago. So I have one daughter that's going to be 32. And they're unmarried, and they desire to be married. And they follow God faithfully in their relationships through their teen years, through college and beyond, yet they remain unmarried. That was a chronic, ongoing struggle in my life and for my faith. Then secondly, along that side of that struggle, there's a shorter season, and it was a long season, but it was shorter, it wasn't 10 years. There was a period of 16 months where nine people that were family or friends died. That was close. When you're a small town, you know the people in your church, you know a lot of people. You're not pastoring a mega church. They're your friends and family. And during those 16 months, nine people died. I did all their funerals, and in one two-week period, my dad and two first cousins passed away. And it was a challenging time. And except for my dad, all the others died earlier in life and some quite tragically. And it was challenging. It was challenging to my faith. The culmination, however, was the suffering my sister experienced after the death of her 26-year-old son at the end of the 16 months. I'll, I'll save you a lot of the details, but she was told the news at midnight on Christmas Eve. A policeman showed up at the door, and her son came to her bedroom and woke her up and told her the news. The timing and manner which she told was terrible. It was also not the first time that she has experienced heartbreaking and life-altering troubles in her life. And here's the issue for me. She is one of the kindest, gentlest, sacrificial people that love the Lord and serve God from a young age. She prayed for her children regularly. She trusted the Lord for them. She was a godly example. We're 18 months apart. Next to my wife, she'd be my closest female relationship. She lives in our town. Um, and when her son died, she has no assurance that he's a believer. And that caused a crisis of faith in my life. And here's the reality. Suffering and in the accompanying darkness comes unannounced into our lives. Some of the suffering is acute. Other suffering is chronic and drawn out over months, even years. We experience sickness, death, loss, family trials, children drifting from the faith. We have unfulfilled hopes and seemingly unanswered prayers in our lives. And there are cumulative effects of setbacks, betrayals, and disappointments. Sometimes disconnects between our labors and the, the consequential fruit, fruitfulness of our labors. We don't know how it fits. Sometimes we labor hard and nothing happens. We see others that seem like they aren't laboring at all and their lives are filled with fruit. And then as you get older, sometimes we struggle as the sun sets on earlier hopes we had in our lives. Yet Isaiah 50.10 says this, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's what it says, in the darkness. The question is, how do we do that? How do we trust in the name of the Lord when we have no light. How can we trust that God is faithful when the immediate circumstances communicate that he might just be the exact opposite? The immediate circumstances are darkness. And here's the reality. You cannot fake faith. You cannot fake trust. 
It's not something you just pretend. You either are trusting God to a lesser or greater degree or you don't trust him at all. You have doubts in your heart. So where does one find faith? How does one find faith in the darkness? So today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. Then we're going to look at doubt as a suspension between faith and unbelief. And then we're going to look at darkness, faith, and the name of the Lord. How do we resolve that? So the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. In spite of the joys and blessings of this world, and there are many, like gathering together this morning, there are many joys and blessings in this world. I've experienced many in my life. But in spite of that, our world remains a dark place. Remains a dark place. We know the reasons. Ever since the fall in the garden, we live in a fallen world. And part of church life is assisting one another through those times of trials and troubles in this life. We provide comfort and care. We make, give counsel, make connections with God's word. When people are struggling, if sin is clearly the cause, we share about reaping and sowing from sin and call for repentance and faith in the Lord, turning from sin. We remind people that God uses even suffering. He does use suffering to discipline us for our good. Hebrews says that we might share in his holiness. We know that's true. And then at other times we discern links and we counsel and share God's promises. But what about the suffering that has no clear purpose or cause what about that suffering when you can't make the connection what about intense pain that seems both inexplicable and fruitless what do you do with that we try to we can't find the answer why did my daughters not get married for 10 15 years following the Lord why why did this person have this tragic accident? Why this with my sister? She's much more godly than me, by the way. And that's not just my opinion. I mean, she really is. Um, well, that's what Job experienced in the book of Job. There was a man, the first verse in the book of Job, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. Wouldn't you like that to be said about you? He, was, he wasn't perfect, but he was, relatively speaking, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Yet Job suffered ter terribly, horribly, and he never knew why. We do. We know more than Job knew. We get to look behind the curtain. He did not know why. And Job's friends had no category for inexplicable, unexplained suffering. They had no category for that. For them, if the world is ruled by a sovereign and just God, life was solely a matter of direct cause and effect. In their mind, this was true for all suffering, including Job's. They believed in the retribution principle, is what Dane Ortland called it. In other words, you reap what you sow. That's just the way life is. So with this one-trick category for suffering, their wounds and counsel to Job became thrusting swords of accusation that merely increased the suffering for righteous Job. All their counselors are saying, Job, just confess your sin. Job, there's something going on in your life. If you just would confess your sin, God will turn this around for you, Job. You're, there's something in you, Job. And that was the one bit of counsel they gave in various chapters over and over to Job. You see, they had to find a reason for Job's suffering in Job because deep down, watching Job suffer was a threat to them. Their whole worldview is at stake because if God allowed suffering in Job's life without clear cause, that meant what happened to Job might happen to them. And then how could they, 
how could they believe or deal with such a God? We do that too, by the way. Got to find a reason. How you doing today, Job? Let me tell you how you're doing. You're getting just what you deserve. That's what they would have said. Confess your sins and be restored. Inexplicable suffering. Because they grasp that unless God is just and fair, the moral fabric of the universe will disintegrate. God has, he's got to be just, he's got to be fair. Now, Elizabeth Elliot experienced similar suffering when her husband, Jim Elliot, was martyred in Ecuador. You know the story, 1950, I believe it was 57, Jim Elliot and four other missionaries went to Ecuador to, to uh, reach out to the Harani, I believe they're called the Harani uh, peoples there. Uh, they made contact with them, flew into a sandbar on a river, and you know the story, met with them, a couple ladies came out, spent the night, the ladies, I believe, next to, left the next morning, and then came other Indians, they thought they were coming to greet them, and they ended up shooting them, shooting them with arrows and poisoned arrows and killing them all. And it was huge. News went around the world. And in becoming Liz, Elizabeth Elliot, her book, her biography that she had a lady write on her behalf, we read these words, her experience with suffering and people similar to Job's friends. She said, upon returning to the churches in the U.S. after her husband was martyred, Elizabeth Elliot detested the shallow God-justifying platitudes of many who sought to comfort her in her sufferings. Their answers, like the answers of Job's friends, were often a means to prop up and protect their own flimsy faith that couldn't stand the test of inexplicable suffering. Because if this aboard suffering could happen to her for no apparent reason, it could happen to them. She's coming here and people are giving all the reasons, all the reasons God's using this and why and what justifying, justifying God. But there's inexplicable suffering. She detested it after a while. People were trying to prop up their own faith. They were seeking to comfort her as much as to comfort themselves regarding this terrible tragedy. And it was a terrible tragedy. She had an 18-month-old daughter. Christopher Ash writes these words in his commentary on Job. We need to be honest and face the kind of world we live in. Why does God allow these things? Why does he do nothing to put these things right? And why, on the other hand, do people who could, care, could not care less about God, why do they justice and thrive? Now, I'm taking you down a dark place. I promise to bring you out. So if you're struggling now, I know we, we have to face the reality. We don't understand why some of the suffering happens in the world. We don't understand. So that's what Christopher Ash said. Jeremiah just puts it this way in Jeremiah 12. He said, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak a word with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? See that? You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would have, I got a question. I'm wondering about your justice at times. Why do the ways of the wicked prosper? And then Elizabeth Elliot just sums it up this way regarding inexplicable suffering. She said, I read somewhere that anyone who's not confused is very badly informed. <laughs> I love that. Here's the truth. At times, God allows intense, inexplicable suffering in life, and he has not told us why. But we may not know why in the moment. It's the reality, folks. The suffering has nothing to do with sin. 
the suffering is not directly proportional to the need for spiritual growth. In other words, Job-like suffering is more common than we may think. It happens. And that type of suffering, suffering when we experience brings questions about God's character, about his goodness and his fairness, which brings doubt to play in our lives. Can I trust that he is good? I'm not sure he is. And now we're struggling with doubt, and we can't fake it. It's there. It's deep. Maybe you've experienced this for years, and you've suppressed it. But when you're praying, there's a question. So, what is doubt? Let's look at that. Doubt is the suspension between faith and unbelief. It's the suspension between faith and unbelief. Deep and prolonged suffering is uniquely challenging for the Christian. We suffer as Christians in a way that the world is not suffering. Because we believe that God is sovereign. We believe in a sovereign God. Amen? By definition, he's a sovereign or he's not God. Christians believe in a sovereign God. And we know that everything that comes to us comes through his hand. The world that doesn't believe in that God doesn't have to deal with that. We do. How do we deal with that? We, Christopher Ash writes these words. And this is going to take you to the edge. Okay, I'm just going to say, tell you up front. This is going to take you right to the edge. He wrote these words. There is a pain for believers that gives suffering a unique sharpness. Suffering is the common experience of the human race. And yet suffering touches the believer with a sharper and uniquely piercing pain. Here's why. The worshiper truly believes God is sovereign. He or she really believes that the living God is in control of the world. And so when suffering comes, it must be God who ultimately sends it. After all, he is in control, is he not? It is God who is in some sense doing the hurting. And then he writes, and yet surely God is just, isn't he? This is the added pain for the believer living in a world of undeserved suffering. That's what we have to deal with. We're wrestling not just with the pain, but with the idea of God, a sovereign God. For undeserved suffering is a threat to the moral foundation of the universe. And here's the issue. Either God is not in control or he is not fair. And that causes the believer deep and sharp perplexity. That's what we deal with as believers. He's either not in control or he is not fair. There are believers with a clear conscience, no hidden sin, trusting in God for forgiveness and walking in the light with him, and yet who suffer terribly. It is a problem, but it is important for us to notice that it is a problem only for the believer. We struggle with this as Christians. Here are some of the comments I've heard from believers in the midst of deep suffering. And these are quotes. One person said, lost a loved one, said, not only did I lose my loved one, I also lost my best friend, meaning the Lord. I also lost my best friend, whom I've leaned on in prayers and hope with, from his, with his promises, from his word all these years. I hoped in his promises. I leaned on him. I prayed to him. And when I lost my, my loved one, I lost my best friend. Felt like he let me down. Here's another one. What makes the suffering harder, this is a Christian saying this, what makes the suffering harder is I know too much, and they weren't being arrogant. What they were saying is I know too much. In other words, I know God's sovereign. This didn't happen by chance. I know he's sovereign. He could have stopped this, and he didn't. 
So the quote is, what makes the suffering harder is I know too much, meaning I know God is sovereign. This tragedy had to at least be allowed by him. After all my prayers, he had to have at least allowed it. And then the final quote, if a human being did what God has allowed, we would throw them in prison. It's a problem. It's a challenge to deal with. Now, before we get to the final part of this, let's talk about doubt. What is doubt? Well, struggling with doubt is a reality as we live between the resurrection and the consummation. And as we live in the now but not yet, promises given but promises yet to be fulfilled, right? That's where we're living right now. We're still in this fallen world. As long as we live in this fallen world, we're going we're to have times where we're going to be tempted to doubt when promises have been made by God but are yet to be fully fulfilled. That's where we live. The Lord gives and the Lord takes us away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a wonderful statement, isn't it? That was said in Job 1. Not in Job 11, 21. Chapters following. Not until the end. Would he have come back to that? He said that in chapter 1. And I found a lot of times when suffering happens, if it's an acute moment of suffering, immediately we have this great faith, I'm going to trust God, and then as time goes on, the questions come. So Job said that in Job 1, but 11, 21, or 31, he was not saying that. It's real. Doubt is real. We struggle with it. Number two, and this is the most important thing for some of you today, doubt is not the same as unbelief. It is not the same as unbelief. In Jude, the book of Jude warns about all kinds of certain evil, blasphemous, and divisive men. That is a big warning in Jude, just verse after verse, about warning about these men. But yet, listen to this regarding those who are wavering with faith. He writes these words, have mercy on those who doubt. I warn you against all these divisive people, all these blasphemous people, but those people who are wavering, have mercy on them. Have mercy on those who doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is not sin. It's wavering between what we believe about God that seems to be contradicted by what we are experiencing at this time. That's why we're doubting. We're doubting because we're wavering. Doubt has not come to a conclusion about God. The heart of doubt is a divided heart. Doubt has its reservations. It hangs back. It is the suspension between faith and unbelief. Here's faith. We have, anybody know what a swinging bridge is? In West Virginia, we have swinging bridges. Anybody know what those are? Okay. You have, a, you have a pillar on this side of the river. You have a pillar on this side of a river. And in between, you have this bridge, and it swings as you walk across it. Doubt is in the middle of that swinging bridge. Over here's faith, and over there's unbelief, and we haven't settled where we're going to end up. We're, we're swinging right between faith and unbelief. So doubt is not sin. Unbelief, however, is sin. It's no longer wavering. It's come out to the other side and said, I don't believe. Doubt hasn't gotten there yet. For with unbelief, the verdict has been decided, decided, the debate is over. It's a willful refusal to believe. Unbelief is a consequence of a settled choice. It's a deliberate response to God's truth. I'm not going to believe that. I don't believe that anymore. To believe is to be of one mind. To disbelieve is to be of another. But doubt, while not unbelief, and it's not unbelief, if not dealt with honestly, 
will lead to unbelief. Okay, it's not unbelief. But if you don't deal with doubt honestly in your life, it will lead you to unbelief. Doubt is not always fatal, but it is always serious. The special temptation to doubt in suffering comes from the fact that we feel that someone must answer for the suffering. And if we don't have anyone that we can point to that's answerable, then God must answer. That's where we go. Then the temptation is to accuse God and malign his, cable, his character in our doubt. Okay? So here's doubt, or here's faith, here's unbelief. We're wavering. And if we don't find faith, we're going to find someone to answer for this. And, and folks, it's going to be God. Because he's sovereign, right? That's where we're going to go. C.S. Lewis got married older in life. I think his wife, I'm not sure I'm correct, but I think she lived about four years. She got cancer and passed away. And she, she was suffering and ended up dying. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called, it was basically his notes from his diary, called A Grief Observed. He loved her deeply. She passed away, so he wrote down what he was experiencing as he was grieving the loss of his wife. And here's some words that he wrote. He said, listen, it's not that I'm, I think I'm in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger in this time, he's saying, the real danger is in coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, because he was an atheist earlier, right? At least an agnostic, probably an atheist. He was that place. He said, I'm not worried. The dread's not that I'll say there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. That's what he feared. I don't fear ceasing to believe. I ceasing coming to a conclusion in this suffering and saying, so this is what God's really like. You put your trust in him and this is what happens. This is what he's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. He's not really good. That's what he feared. Os Guinness wrote these words. The temptation to doubt does not come in not believing God, but in believing what is not God. The danger is that we press judgment too far and our, our speculation distorts or creates such a distorted picture of God that we cannot continue to believe in good faith. In other words, if you sit there and you struggle with doubt, if you don't deal with it, after a while, you're going to distort who God is. Then he writes, believing the wrong thing is always halfway to believing nothing. Our misrepresentations of God are so pathetically inadequate or monstrously hideous that to believe in him any longer is unnecessary or repugnant. In other words, in the midst of your suffering, you're going to struggle with doubt and unbelief, and you're going to start thinking things about God that are not true. And if you don't deal with it honestly, and you don't have a way to deal with this doubt biblically, you're going to end up distorting the image of God. And I've seen both directions, where you're going to distort God into some monster who doesn't care about anyone. He's just out to get you. You can't believe in him. Or to create a God who basically is not the true God. He's just someone that isn't really in control. He couldn't help it. You're going to squeeze him down to a puny God, and you're going to trust a God who doesn't actually exist. I've seen both. So in the end, doubt will either drive us to distort the image of God into a monster or shrink him into an image of our own making and to trust a God who doesn't truly exist. So that's a challenge in suffering. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. 
If you're younger, you may not have experienced that. If you're older, there's a greater chance you've gone through a season in your life where you've had suffering or maybe you are now and you're saying, man, I, I, I trust him, but I have this little hitch. I have this little catch. I can't trust him fully. I'm just not sure about this. So the question is, is how do we get beyond that? And that's what I dealt with for, and it was over a couple year process. I didn't lose my faith. I didn't, I didn't quit becoming a Christian, but it was a struggle. When I went to pray, I'm not sure he hears. I'm not sure he cares. Does he care? So how do we get out of the darkness and trust the Lord in the midst of suffering? So let's look at out of the darkness, faith in the name of the Lord. Because that's what he said, right? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name. Do you see that? Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Well, in God's kindness, a significant turning point for me came when I read this quote from God in the Dark by Oz Guinness. I actually saw it in an obituary. I saw it posted on Facebook. I think it's the only good thing I ever got from Facebook. That was lasting, lasting value. Those are the good things from Facebook. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Lasting eternal value. How's that? Here's the quote. Someone had lost their daughter. Posted this quote. I think I actually went to the, the website of the obituary and read this quote in the obituary. It's from Oz Guinness, and I've sent Mike. There's five books that have helped me in this, in this quest, and I've sent the resources if you want those, and the quotes here too. I've got them all. Mike has those. Here's the quote that helped me. Suffering is the most acute trial that faith can face, and the questions it raises are the sharpest, the most insistent, and the most damaging that faith will meet. Can faith bear the pain and still trust God, suspending judgment and resting in the knowledge that God is there, God is good, and God knows best? Or will the pain be so great that only meaning will make it endurable so that reason will be pressed further and further and judgments must be made? But if the Christian's faith is to be itself and let God be God at such times in the times of suffering, it must suspend judgment and say, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. That quote began my journey towards understanding what Isaiah 50, 10 said, and other things as well. But this quote, can we suspend, can faith bear the pain and still trust God suspending judgment? I thought, wow, can I suspend judgment? Because I wanted to understand. The people I talk to want to know. Can I suspend, suspend judgment? So here's the point. When necessary in suffering, we must be willing to suspend judgment in those times of inexplicable suffering. We must be willing to suspend judgment in times of inexplicable suffering. In other words, we must reject what one writer has called keyhole theology. Now, you get a little sense, the older folks get a sense of what that is. Keyhole theology, in the, in, back in, how many of you have been in the homes that have keyholes instead and you put the key in the lock, right? You've been there. Back in the day, there was actually testimony that came in criminal trials where keyhole testimony convicted people because ladies, cleaning ladies or men who worked in hotels would look through a keyhole and to see something, they would see some, a crime committed. And then when it came time for the trial, they gave testimony of what they saw through the keyhole and indicted people. Keyhole theology is drawing overarching, overarching and false conclusions about a whole situation 
from some partial information we really do see. Because when you look through that keyhole, you're not seeing the whole room. You're just seeing what that keyhole allows. And folks, that's the way we live our lives in this world. So keyhole theology is drawing overarching and false conclusions about a whole situation from some partial information we really do know, we really do see. We don't have the whole picture, but once we've seen a little, it's difficult to resist trying to extrapolate the rest about what God is doing and why. And that is especially true in suffering. I know this much, and I want to make judgment from what I know. We must be willing to suspend judgment in those times, recognizing we do not know everything as God knows, particularly in times of gardens. We don't know everything. Job didn't, and neither do we. These, from Scripture, God is not mere man that we should be like him. He's not a man. He's not like us. Even in our best, we see dimly through a glass, right? That's what James says. We see dimly through a glass. His ways are infinitely higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. We must admit in suffering the known facts are against God, but we must also believe and know the known facts are not all the facts. What we know isn't everything. We're trying to answer how can I not, how can I suspend judgment? We begin by saying, I can suspend judgment because God's ways are higher than my ways. I don't know everything he knows. And I never will. I will not know that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't seek to understand when we're suffering. You aren't putting your mind out to, to lunch. It doesn't mean we, we aren't trying to understand. So I'm not saying that. And it doesn't mean denying emotional pain in our suffering. Well, I'm not really suffering. No, it's bad enough. You can't deny the fact you're suffering. It's hard. Life's hard. Situations are hard. With my sister, I cannot deny it's, it is a difficult. It's difficult much more for her, but it's difficult for me as her brother that loves her. I can't deny that emotional pain because denying reality is a mark of make-believe, not, re not living faith. So I'm not telling you to deny reality. That's make-believe. No, you're very much a present in reality, okay? Listen, there's a reason that 30, or 40, or 30 to 40% of the psalms are psalms of lament because we are living in the now but not yet. They're, giving, they're given to us in this world, in this time. So it doesn't mean we don't seek to understand. It doesn't mean to deny our emotional pain and our suffering. But suspending judgment, and thirdly, suspending judgment in suffering is not a, irrational. It's not irrational to suspend judgment. But, it's, we, but it's, it's not irrational only if we know we got to have a reason for why we're going to suspend judgment, right? We can't just say, case or rah, whatever will be, will be, and still have faith. We can't do that. So we, 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 when we're suffering and we're struggling with doubt and we're called to suspend judgment in the midst of that, we still seek to understand we don't deny emotional pain, and we've got to know why we're willing to suspend judgment right now if we're going to do that. And that's where Isaiah 50, 10, it's what it tells us to do. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So how do we suspend judgment and not do it irrationally? I can suspend judgment. We can suspend judgment in the darkness because our God is not merely God. 
But his name, we know, he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now follow me again. Our God is not just some generic God. The name of our Father is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. In the darkness right now, even though I don't know why this occurred, I can look to a place in history where God has proven his love to, for me once and for all. Our God has proven his infinite and unchanging goodness once and for all at Calvary through his son on the cross. That's who he is. He's the God and Father, a very specific God, the only God. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he has done. And our God being that God makes all the difference in the dark. All the difference. I can suspend judgment here in the dark because God has proven to me that he is infinitely good there on the cross. Okay? One writer write this. How can I be sure that God is there and that God is good is answered satisfactorily only in Jesus Christ? Any proof of God's existence or argument in favor of his goodness that ends anywhere else is bound to be inconclusive or wrong. When I'm in the darkness now and thoughts and suffering and pain is swirling around and it is dark because all that is going on, I can look back and, and see where God's love was clearly displayed once and for all on my behalf. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. I had a wonderful father. He died at 91. There were times in my life as a young man, I didn't know why he was telling me what he told me to do or didn't not to do. But he had proven his love to me. And I could obey him even though I didn't understand why. We can trust him, even, we can trust him now even when we don't understand why because what he's done for us then, folks. That's where you walk. That's how you walk in the darkness. When you have no light. God being that God makes all the difference. I can suspend judgment here in the darkness because God has proven that he is infinitely good there in Christ at the cross. He's proven it once for all. Doubts about the Father's goodness are silenced by the Son. Let the unanswered questions about God's goodness drive you to the place where his goodness and irrefutable love are most clearly and unassailably displayed. Job had a, he returned to faith through a majestic revelation of God. We've been given a much greater revelation of God's goodness once for all through the crucified Savior, God's only Son, Jesus Christ. And who's calling us to trust God in the darkness in Isaiah 50.10? It's the suffering servant. If you look in before verse 10 and verse 6, it is a suffering servant himself who obeyed God fully, it says. The one who gave his back to the, those who strike. The one who gave his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard. The one who hid not his face from disgrace and spitting. The one who set his face like a flint, knowing ultimately he would not be put to shame. The one who experienced separation and darkness from his father that we might never be separated from the love of God. That's who's speaking and calling you to trust God in the darkness. 
If it was me or anyone else, you'd say, so what? That's the one who suffered darkness in our place. We're never going to be in darkness because the Son took it in our place. What amazing love of the Father that He would give us His Son. It's the Isaiah 53 servant who displayed the inexplicable goodness of God on the cross in our place. Only the inexplicable love of God explains such inexplicable suffering of His sinless Son on our behalf. Inexplicable love trumps inexplicable darkness for the Christian. Even when we don't understand, we can go to that place. So the name of our God, trust in the name of the Lord, that God's name is not just God, but the God, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's who he is. He has shown us his love, and that makes all the difference. So, I can suspend judgment now in the darkness, now, because the knowledge of that love in Christ puts to rest any doubts about the goodness of my Heavenly Father towards me. So that is no longer up for debate. Reason, I'm going to suspend the reasoning, and I'm going to go to where Christ was, God's love was clearly displayed. It's not unreasonable for me to suspend judgment because judgment was taking place there on my behalf and settled. The love of God was settled in my soul. That's how it helped me. Is God sovereign? Yes, I believe God is sovereign. Is God good? Yes, I know he's good because when I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That's how I know he was good. Writer writes, there are facts of life in a fallen world that we will never be able to explain, but we must never explain away. Faith, however, can suspend judgment in these questions, for there is no question we cannot leave with God if he is the Father of Jesus Christ. Father, I'll leave that question with you, because I know you love me. I know you love me. So we sing the hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, no matter how good it looks, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Trust in the name of the Lord your God. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground in this troubling world is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Then we sing, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on where? His un... That's where I rest. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds in this world? No way. Within the veil. That's where it holds. It holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Ellen Vaughn, who wrote Elizabeth Elliot's biography, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, and by the way, her, son, her husband was going through brain cancer when she was writing this book. And she's reading, reading Elizabeth Elliot's journals as a younger girl or teenager. She's reading these journals that Elizabeth Elliot wrote her whole life to get to write the book. So she's reading her journals at a young age, and she's sharing all of her dreams and hopes for the future. You know how we are at a young age. It's, it's, all, it's all sunshine in the future. She's writing these journals, and, Elizabeth, and then Ellen Vaughn's writing, and she writes in the epilogue of that book. She writes, 
turning the thin pages of Elizabeth Elliot's journals, I knew the end of that story. She knew what was coming. The young Elizabeth did, writing did not. I wanted to warn her to shout across the decades to prepare for the storm. Get ready. The hurricane's coming. It's mercy, she writes, that none of us know what's coming. It's mercy, isn't it? But then she quoted these words from Elizabeth Elliot's journal as well. Elizabeth wrote, I belong to God. He is faithful. His words are true. And the transformation, the ultimate springtime, already planted on the cross by someone in our place, is coming. Folks, the ultimate springtime is coming. I don't know if you're suffering darkness right now, but I tell you, you have a living Savior who came from the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of darkness, in the shadow. The people in darkness have seen a great light. That's what the gospel says, right? We've been living in the shadows. We are living in the shadows, but the light has come. And if you're, if you're here today and you're a guest, it's not a mistake that you're here. The Lord wants